0: In 1936, the economist John Maynard Keynes acquired a collection of handwritten manuscripts at an auction. They'd been written by the great 17th century scientist and mathematician Sir Isaac Newton. To his astonishment, Keynes discovered, however, that they revealed years and years in which Newton had worked in his laboratory as an alchemist. Newton was not, concluded Keynes famously, the first of the age of reason. He was the last of the magicians.
1: Well, was Keynes right? Last time we saw that new research by historians of science has shown that alchemy was not some quack magic that tried and failed to turn lead into gold. It was a perfectly serious experimental project that attempted to understand the nature of matter. Newton and the many other distinguished and well known thinkers who spent their lives doing it didn't call it alchemy, but chemistry with a Y. And by the 1770s, it had evolved without any major break into something we'd now recognise as chemistry.
0: With an E. So, was Keynes wrong? Newton was not, after all, the last of the magicians? The thing is, that's not the whole story.
1: Hello, good to see you at the History Cafe. This is where we come to talk, usually about historical stories everyone knows. Just want to try out some new ideas. I'm John Rosebank.
0: And I'm Penelope Middlebow. At the History Café, we revisit stories that have got stuck in our collective memory,
1: but just don't look quite right to us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens. Historians of science have produced a great deal of evidence to show that what Isaac Newton and his late 17th century and 18th century contemporaries were doing was not alchemical hocus-pocus, It was what we should nowadays call science, repeatable, measurable, finely calibrated, documented and perfectly rational investigations into the way things were made.
0: But these are, after all, historians of science, and you can't help thinking that perhaps they protest just too much. After all, there was always something very odd about what Newton and the others in the second half of the 17th century called chemistry. Whereas investigations into light or mathematics or gravity were discussed openly at the Royal Society in London or the Académie Royale in Paris, chemistry, with a Y, was wrapped up in a dense
1: veil of secrecy. As John Maynard Keynes discovered when he analysed the Newton papers he'd bought, these chemists had a habit of writing up their findings in elaborate and obscure allegories in complex references to ancient mythology and magic-sounding code words. What, after all, do you make of Newton's note, for example, that, quote, to find this matter of our stone, you must draw up the moon from the firmament and bring it from heaven upon the earth, of Mars, and turn it into water and then into earth?
0: (laughs) Yep. Now, William Newman, the contemporary historian of science, explains, after years of replicating Newton's experiments in the laboratory, that this simply means taking a combination of a chemical we nowadays call stipnite, with nitric and hydrochloric acids, and using all this to dissolve iron ore, which is then distilled and solidified.
1: Well, that's all very well, but why didn't Newton just say so, or some plain 17th century version of it? The product of this experiment was, according to William Newman, some ordinary old salt of iron. According to Isaac Newton, it was, quotes, the scythe of Saturn. And also the sharp spear of Mars, which gives Mercury work enough to do. And off we go again into more obscure references to ancient mythology.
0: Now, these strange terms, Mars, Saturn, and the others, are known to historians of science by a German word, Decknamen, which means code names. In the manuscripts, they were often not even represented by their names, but by esoteric symbols. It's no wonder that Keynes thought Newton was dabbling in magic, since he found the Newton manuscripts filled with these decanamen, the green dragon, the caduceus of Mercury, and all kinds of inexplicable hieroglyphs. In some alchemical texts from the period published by other people, these characters are even accompanied by mythological woodcuts, for example depicting a winged Saturn attacking Mercury with a scythe, intending to cut off his
1: feet. Well, the obvious question follows: Newton never bothered to dress up his laws of motion, or the mathematical method of calculus, or descriptions of gravity or light in code words, or in colourful or ancient-sounding mythology, or woodcuts of mythological ancient grievous bodily harm. <laughs> Newton called gravity gravity, the opposite of levity. He didn't call it something like the burden of Atlas. It would have been great. I'd have studied it better. So, why all the fancy footwork when it came to chemistry? Does it suggest that what these chemists were up to, after all, was some kind of magic?
0: Well, historians have come up with several explanations. Still, the most widely known came from Keith Thomas's venerable book, Religion and the Decline of Magic, published back in 1971. Thomas argued that magic had been the pet pastime of the Puritans during the English Civil War. It therefore became socially unacceptable after the restoration of the English monarchy in 1660. So anyone who went on doing it had to do it in secret
1: with code names. Thomas's idea was, however, comprehensively trashed in 1992 when the historian Andrew Mendelssohn showed that what Thomas calls magic, which might include things like alchemy, went on being widely practiced right across the social and political spectrum, Puritans and anti Puritans alike, for generations after the end of the English Civil War in 1660. Mendelssohn showed that the king himself, Charles II, had a laboratory in his private chambers and employed both a French alchemist and an astrologer. In fact, writes Mendelssohn, "...between 1650 and 1680, more alchemical books were published in England than before or since." Clearly the reason that what Thomas calls magic may have gone into hiding in England was not because it had become socially unacceptable.
0: No, in fact, in the 1680s, Robert Plott, Secretary of the Royal Society, first Professor of Chemistry at Oxford, even petitioned King James II to found a new alchemical college there. The Professor promised the King, get this, that they would at last find the Philosopher's Stone and provide him with so much gold he could dispense with all those awkward parliaments and their
1: tricksy taxes. So, Keith Thomas's venerable old explanation won't any longer fly. But with this story about Professor Plot and his alchemical college, the uh, (laughs) the, the, the plot thickens, as they say. Uh. It brings us very neatly to a second explanation that historians have given why alchemy went into hiding in this period. And for that, we need to go to Paris. In
0: 1666, Jean-Baptiste Colbert, the French First Minister, established the Académie Royale des Sciences. But American historian Lawrence Princip has shown that right from the start, Colbert banned the transmutation of metals, alchemy in other words, from the new academy.
1: Actually, as we saw last time, the French academicians went on practising alchemy, including at in a lab in the Royal Palace. Mm-hmm. But Colbert's rules meant that they always had to be very secretive about it, which might explain, in France at least, all the codenames and colourful mythology. But why was Colbert so down on alchemy? Well, Princip suggests that alchemy had always had something of an image problem, since it was often associated in the contemporary's minds with concocting poisons and perpetrating frauds. But there was also something more specific.
0: Princip has found a letter from 1692 in which a Swedish visitor to the academy seems to explain this ban of Colbert's. The chemist Eric Odelius writes, The king doesn't wish it to be thought that his money is produce per arefactionem, by gold-making. At a time before proper paper money, the authentic gold content of the country's coinage mattered. So, Princip argues, according to Adelius, King Louis XIV believed that the French would not accept his coins if they thought the gold in them had been cooked up by alchemists. However good the chemists said their gold was, what they wanted in their coins was the real stuff.
1: Gold dug up in the usual way. According to this explanation, chemists had to hide what they were doing because the authorities were afraid that rumours they were making gold would destroy the value of their country's currency. It wasn't magic they were concealing, but it might be fraud.
0: Alchemy, or chemistry as many called it at the time, may look to modern historians of science more or less like modern chemistry. But in Sir Isaac Newton's time, it shrouded itself in obsessive secrecy. One explanation is that governments tried to shut these chemists down because rumours that they were fabricating gold were undermining the national currency.
1: Kind of makes sense. Well, there's definitely something in this explanation. The most extraordinary evidence comes from Paris. Alchemists caught trying to make gold were being banged up in the Bastille, ostensibly to protect the integrity of the currency. From 1704, a whole network of alchemists was rounded up, under suspicion that they'd been making gold under the cover of manufacturing drugs. But by this time, King Louis XIV, builder of Versailles, France's son-king, its most famously extravagant monarch, was running out of money. So inside the famous jail, the alchemists were secretly made to carry on their experiments in the hope of making a quick profit for the king.
0: The most notorious case concerned a chemist from Provence called Jean de Lille. In 1705, the local bishop wrote to the Contrôleur-Général des Finances that this man, de Lille, could turn iron into silver. By 1710, the local mint was involved. Its president went along to see de Lille at work and came away completely convinced. They sent three medallions to Louis XIV made
1: from de Lille's alchemical gold. Well, now there were desperate attempts to get the man to Paris, especially as it became clear that other governments were making him offers. Hmm. He was eventually seized and imprisoned in the Bastille, though in a grand apartment, and told to get on and start making gold. Well, he failed. He blamed the lack of decent sunlight in Paris, hmm. finally I had to admit that he'd been using a mysterious powder from Italy and that he'd run out. Anyway, in 1712, he died in mysterious circumstances still in the Bastille.
0: De Lille's gold medallions were tested in 1886, 200 years later, using nitric acid, which dissolves all metal except gold. That's why it's called the acid test. And De Lille's gold medallions passed. One of them, described as being of a very beautiful metal, was last seen in Paris in 1928 at an auction. But nobody knows where it is now.
1: Case for Lupa, I think. Anyway, there's much more of this in Lawrence Principe's Excellent Transmutations of Chemistry, published in 2020. But you can already see that perfectly rational chemists like Newton may have had to veil their alchemy in obsessive secrecy because of pressure from their governments, afraid for the integrity of their national currency. Nobody wanted to end up in prison and forced, like the miller's daughter, to make gold out of iron or lead, if not actually out of straw, and hoping Rumpelstiltskin will show up (laughs) and do the magic for them.
0: The most intriguing and still rather mysterious evidence for this theory comes from Isaac Newton himself. In 1696, he abruptly gave up his academic career, closed his Cambridge laboratory and moved to London. He became, wait for it, warden of the Royal Mint
1: where they make all the coins.
0: Now, why the notoriously reclusive Newton should want to leave his Cambridge college and launch himself into London politics and society has never satisfactorily been explained.
1: Once he arrived in town, Newton not only involved himself in various reforms to the making of gold coinage, but also set out personally to round up money forgers, a job that was normally done by the Mint's more humble employees. So here we have the image of the Lucasian Professor of Maths at Cambridge, that's Stephen Hawkins' predecessor, putting on a disguise and working London's backstreet dives and haunts for days on end as a self-appointed detective on the trail of counterfeiters. It's all rather inexplicable.
0: We know that Newton got the job because he had friends in the government. We know that in 1696 the mint was involved in a complicated reissue of its silver coinage and that Newton's expertise with metals, never published but known to people connected with the mint, might have been useful. We also know now that he went on being involved with alchemy until at least 1705 and talked at the end of his life in 1727 about giving it another go. One of his private furnaces is still in the Royal Mint in
1: Birmingham. Well nobody's ever found the slightest evidence that Newton was, like the alchemists in Paris, attempting to find an alchemical solution to the government's eternal problem of never having enough gold. But we have to admit, in the context of the other examples from this time, and given his otherwise mysterious move to the Royal Mint, well, it's hard to resist just a small speculation.
0: It's a good story, but leaving that aside, the serious argument here is that the chemists' strange obsession with secrecy and with elaborate mythical and allegorical descriptions of their work had a perfectly mundane explanation. It arose from fears for the value of the currency. And that seems convincing enough when it concerns the public face of alchemy.
1: After all, try to imagine what would happen if J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter world of magic was ever a reality. We can quickly see the political and economic chaos that would follow. Not only the currency, but ordinary businesses and governments wouldn't stand a chance. In the same way, alchemists believed, like Harry Potter's wizards and witches, that they had no choice but to hide behind a veil of secrecy and obfuscation. The work
0: of historian Lawrence Principe suggests another perfectly reasonable explanation, also. He shows that late 17th century chemists like Robert Boyle in London or Wilhelm Homburg in Paris jealously guarded what they saw as their trade secrets. The result was not only the deliberate obfuscation in print, but also a vigorous underground trade in alchemical information. Prince reconstructs the travels of the French chemist Wilhelm
1: Homburg making his way round Europe. In Berlin, he trades the secret of making a barometer, which he'd acquired in Magdeburg, and he trades it for instruction in making white phosphorus.
0: In London, he seems to exchange this secret of making white phosphorus, or perhaps a phosphorescent stone, which he'd acquired in Bologna, for Boyle's technique in purifying mercury.
1: He later also uses his knowledge of white phosphorus to win friends at the Academy Royale in Paris, and so on and on. The important thing for these chemists was to keep their secrets secret, not only so that they didn't get imprisoned or lynched, but also so that their precious discoveries kept their value, could be traded. Now we know that
0: Newton was anxious to keep alchemical secrets secret, and not just his own. In 1676, he wrote to a fellow natural philosopher... German Heinrich Oldenburg, complaining about the way the Royal Society chemist Robert Boyle was letting far too
1: much information slip. But nobody has yet discovered any evidence at all that Newton himself was involved in this trading of secrets. The million and more words that he wrote in his laboratory remained intensely private. Their elaborate, allegorical, symbolic meaning impenetrable to anyone but the experienced adept perhaps impenetrable to anyone except Newton. Newton never seems to have had any thought of communicating them with anyone except his close collaborators within his lab and one or two chosen associates. Even John Wiccan, who lived and worked with him for years in Trinity College and may just possibly have been his lover, seems to have had no idea what the great man was trying to achieve.
0: So in Newton's case, the trade secret argument, and indeed the national currency argument, are less convincing. This was a very private project for Newton. So we're still looking for a persuasive explanation of why he wrapped up these chemical experiments and notes in so much obscure and mythological paraphernalia. And this is as far as the historians of science can take us. Now we need to step through into another world altogether.
1: Let's go back to 1966. Two young lecturers at Leeds University, J. E. Maguire and P. M. Rattancey, wrote a paper for the Royal Society. They called it Newton and the Pipes of Pan. The two young historians are examining various editions Newton wrote, apparently in the 1690s, for a second edition of his great book Principia Mathematica. Now, these editions were never published. In them, Newton discussed various historical and mythical figures. From Pythagoras, Plato and Plutarch, to Ecphantus, Empedocles, uh, Metrodorus of Chios, and Moscus the Phoenician. Uh, whoever they may have been. I yeah, you did that.
0: <laughs> Newton's draft editions that these two young lecturers were on about have been known for a long time as the Classical scholia because of their references to various classical authors. But they'd always been dismissed as the rantings of a disordered mind. It does seem, in fact, that Newton had had a brief period of mental breakdown in about
1: 1693. Maguire and Matanzi argued, however, that we need to take these classical scholia much more seriously. They produced letters from people who worked with Newton in the 1690s and 1700s. These letters showed that Newton was both completely rational and also completely serious about his ancient classical studies. In fact, as we now know, in his private papers, Newton wrote at least as much about these ancient, often legendary figures, and about various parallel passages in the Bible, as he did about gravity, or light, or calculus, or chemistry.
0: Indeed, in later editions of his great book on light, Optics, Newton openly made something of a parallel between his own work, Pythagoras's work on the planets and on music, and on the seven notes of the pipes blown by the legendary Greek figure, Pan. Well, that's why Maguire and Ratansi called their paper Newton and the Pipes of Pan.
1: Now, the historians of science have been inclined to gloss over all of this, arguing that it's mad to think that Newton got any of his ideas from reading ancient texts, myths, prophecies, and saying that all of this was simply something completely different from Newton's experimental work. As if Newton was well, a chemist on Monday, a mathematician on Tuesday, and a rather eccentric classical scholar on Wednesday.
0: But Maguire and Ratansi make a much more credible suggestion... What they proposed was that Newton was scouring all these ancient writings for confirmation that his chemical and mathematical ideas were
1: right. Well that's extraordinary enough, but in his biography of Newton published in 2018, the mathematical historian Niccolò Giocattini had gone even further. He discovered that Newton first became interested in these ancient texts because he came to be convinced that ancient geometry was actually better than the newfangled algebra, which was devised by the 17th century philosopher René Descartes and was sweeping the world of natural philosophy in Newton's day.
0: That extraordinary idea is backed up in an ingenious doctoral thesis submitted in 2015 by historian Paul Greenham for the University of Toronto. Greenham laboriously examined more than 50 of the books Newton had owned in his private library. It's well known that Newton had a habit of turning over the corners of pages in his books whenever he found something he wanted to remember. 300 years later, some of those dog ears are still there. Others have been tidied up and flattened out, but you can still see where they were. Now, you don't go refolding the pages of priceless books from Newton's library – But Greenham digitally refolded the pages and he found a remarkable pattern. Newton wasn't just dog-earing his favourite pages. He was folding the paper so that the corner pointed exactly to the phrase
1: he wanted to remember. Suddenly we have a remarkable path into the mind of a genius. Greenham shows us that Newton closely analyzed ancient myths and prophecies as well as the more recent chemical texts that often referred to these old myths and prophecies as they were describing their alchemical processes. Then Greenhill was able to match up the dogged passages to the private notebooks Newton kept. He shows Newton systematically matching his dogged passages up with his experiments. And then Greenhill traced the dogged references through to the enormous manuscript Newton called his Index Chemicus. It was a vast dictionary of all the various names and terms and references he'd come across in all his reading. It includes, says Greenhill, references to at least 144 of these very difficult texts that Newton had in his library, written by over 100 different authors. It must have taken Newton years of intense work to
0: complete and it must have taken Greenhill years of intense work to track it all down. Greenhill's conclusion is that what Newton was doing was translating. He argues that Newton believed, and this is the extraordinary conclusion, that everything he was discovering had originally been known to ancient peoples. Not only the chemistry he did in his laboratory, but also what became his most famous work on gravity and light.
1: However... Newton thought that the wise men of the past, Moschus, the Phoenician and all the others, had carefully hidden their extraordinary discoveries. They needed to keep them away from ordinary people because they believed that ordinary people would misuse them. And the way they hid what they discovered was to wrap it all up in a dense language of symbolism and myth, creating what we now know as Egyptian hieroglyphs, biblical prophecies, Greek myths, and later on all those obscure alchemical texts. Newton, in fact, believed that descriptions of the Hebrew temple of Solomon in the Bible or the dimensions of the Egyptian pyramids or Greek myths like Pan's Pipes with all the code names and mystical symbols and all the rest were in reality texts that if only you could unscramble them, translate them, would explain the world, the universe, everything.
0: Of course, most people then and now just took all things like Greek myths literally as ancient history or wrote them off as morality stories or fairy tales. But Newton believed that a few, the adepts, the chosen ones, had the ability to learn to decode them and recover the wisdom of the ancients. Isaac Newton firmly believed he was one of the chosen ones. Indeed, there's some evidence, as we shall see, that he thought he was the chosen one, whose life's work was to decode all of this ancient material and bring it together in a new natural philosophy.
1: Well, you'll say, that's completely mad.
0: We now know that Sir Isaac Newton's alchemical papers were in fact attempts through an exhaustive study of ancient and contemporary texts backed up by years of laboratory experiments, attempts to decode the profound understanding of the world and the way it was made, knowledge he believed ancient peoples had possessed. Well, you'll say Newton was clearly crazy. But let's return to that paper written back in 1966 for the Royal Society by Maguire and Ritanzi. What they pointed out was that Newton was very far from alone in his belief that there was an ancient wisdom encoded for the cognoscenti find in myths and texts. The notion that there was a Prisca Sapienta, ancient wisdom, or Prisca Theologia, ancient theology,
1: was in fact common in Newton's time. It was, in fact, just a version of one of the central themes of the Renaissance, which of course means rebirth, and is used to cover a period in which thinkers and artists of all kinds thought that they were rediscovering the philosophy and arts of the ancients. And the idea of a secret, encoded Prisca theologia happened to be especially important in 17th century Cambridge, where Newton spent much of his life. Here was a group of thinkers known as the Cambridge Neoplatonists, who had exactly that belief. Now, Maguire and Ratancie never claimed that Newton was himself a Neoplatonist, though historians of science have tried to say they did. They simply say that what Newton was up to was not madness and was not unusual. His views were, perhaps, getting to seem rather old-fashioned by the late 17th century, but they were certainly shared by plenty of others, and especially in Cambridge.
0: What Maguire and Ratancie suggested has since been fleshed out by Rob Eiliff and other scholars of Newton's philosophical and religious ideas and it opens up a whole new perspective on Newton's thinking. Exactly how he thought Pythagoras' analysis of musical tones, Pan's pipes, and the Greeks' understanding of the planets related to his mathematical analysis of gravity, is, as you will imagine, something that would require a great number of paper napkins, diagrams and
1: calculations to explain doesn't really matter. Eilis shows that when Newton published his Principia Mathematica, often seen as a foundational text of modern science, what he in fact thought he was doing was, quote, recovering the actual knowledge that had been known to the ancients. Except that this time, instead of hiding his discoveries in myths and allegories, Newton wrapped them up in impenetrable maths. And here's the thing, Newton intended the maths to be impenetrable, to be understood only by the chosen few just like the ancient myths.
0: So John Maynard Keynes was right when he said, Newton doesn't look very much like the first of the age of reason. He's very much wrapped up in the concepts of a much older world. But does that make him the
1: last of the magicians? Well, in the course of transcribing from his texts and noting his findings, Newton certainly let slip some pretty unexpected ideas. For example, in his draft's unpublished scolium to proposition 9 of Principia, Newton twice refers to the ancient belief that matter has some kind of soul. It is, he wrote, "quotes attended with signs of life. And in a phrase that was originally meant to go into optics, but was later dropped, Newton wrote, "quotes we cannot say that all nature is not alive. Well, that certainly looks like a magical belief. On
0: page 289 of his copy of an anonymous French book on chemistry, we find one of Newton's dog ear markers. The passage is discussing how ignorant people think of the alchemist's philosopher's stone as the work of the devil. Newton's folded down corner points instead to another explanation. It was, says the text at this point, l'effet de la simple magie naturelle, the effect of simple, natural magic.
1: Towards the end of his life, Newton commented to his friend John Cundewitt, who was married to his niece, that, quote, intelligent beings superior to us would eventually appear and precipitate the end of the world.
0: Now we could argue that the bottom just dropped out of the rational scientific interpretation we've always had of Newton. But before we bail out, we should remember that we're talking about the 17th century, and there were very good reasons for Newton to be talking about mysteries and even magic, To understand what they were, we need to do a little more digging. There is no doubt that among the wisdom Newton believed he decoded from ancient authors, that there were some magical beliefs, for example, in a great soul that animated the world.
1: But let's get this in context. In 2019, a young historian, Xiana Wang, submitted to her doctoral thesis at the University of Edinburgh and she must forgive us if we don't pronounce her name quite right. We'll do our best. In it, she argued, building on the work of other recent historians like John Henry, that Newton's work was the product of an extraordinary coming together of ideas in 17th century England. There were several strands, but for us, two of them are key. The first was using mathematics as a way of understanding the world. Wang traces it through from John Dee, Queen Elizabeth's private astrologer, to Isaac Barrow, Newton's predecessor as an Lucasian professor at Cambridge, and so to Newton himself.
0: But Wang argues that there was also a second specifically English strand in 17th century natural philosophy. She traces it first to Francis Bacon. Bacon had been an Elizabethan and Jacobean courtier, at one time Attorney General and Lord Chancellor. But he was also interested in what we would nowadays broadly call science.
1: Now, these days, Bacon is best known for establishing a key idea. Most European natural philosophers worked deductively from first principles. They progressed, as they believed, logically from one proposition to the next. Of course, like all logical philosophy, their reasoning was only as good as the unspoken and very often unidentified assumptions that underlay them. Bacon argued instead that you should proceed inductively from what you observe. Don't tell me how things ought to be, tell me how things are. And if you can't explain why, well, that's fine. For the time being, let it be a mystery.
0: Now, Bacon believed we could change the weather transmute metals and perhaps find the elixir of life. Like Dee before him, he was part philosopher and part magician. But Bacon wrote, quotes, The aim of magic is to recall natural philosophy from the vanity of speculations to the magnitude of works. In other words, for Bacon, what was important was not what you speculated should exist, but what you could measurably observe happening for yourself even if that included magical mysteries.
1: Now, this mattered, especially when it came to understanding how things moved, which was a problem that troubled all the natural philosophers of the 17th century. In particular, they wondered, why was it that when you let your quill pen go, did it fall on the page and make a blot? Why didn't it go flying out the window or up towards the ceiling? Like it does on the moon. Yeah, uh, they wouldn't know that. (laughs) Most natural philosophers at the time accepted Descartes' argument that there was no such thing as empty space, nor any weird unseen forces, hidden forces pulling things around. If things moved, something must physically be pushing them. So if things moved downwards... Well, it must be because something we can neither see, hear, nor measure, uh, ethers or vortices or movements of things in general, was pushing them down.
0: Well, for a Baconian philosopher, this was all just vain speculation. There was no visible evidence at all of ethers or vortices or things continually jostling and pushing each other around. What you observe was simply that things fell. Why, he just couldn't explain. Bacon concluded instead that there was a force, more like magnetism, that pulled things downwards. Nobody could explain it, nor could they explain magnetism either. It was better to stop at describing what you observe than try to make up a shaggy dog story about invisible ethers and vortices and things pushing you about.
1: Well, to cut an enormously long story short, and it involves the exploration of vacuums and more about magnetism among other things, you can see how, by the second half of the 17th century, we arrive at Isaac Newton. He showed, mathematically, that the same mysterious force that apparently pulled things towards the ground also pulled the planets towards each other and the sun. It was an extraordinary breakthrough. It was why their orbits weren't circular but followed complicated elliptical patterns. Actually, it was the English natural philosopher Robert Hooke, Newton's contemporary, who first came up with the idea. Newton just supplied the mathematics. Actually, we say just, but that in itself was a work of genius.
0: So together they showed that the pattern of the planet's orbits pretty exactly matched what you'd predict if some mysterious pulling force was strongest at a planet's surface and then weakened as you moved away, according to the mathematical law known as the inverse square.
1: And Eureka! There you have it. Gravity. Well, eventually you do. Although Newton observed gravity and mathematically described it, he could never satisfactorily explain it. He tried it various times using Descartes' ethers and so on and concluded it just didn't work out. There was clearly just something pulling things down, not anything pushing them. European philosophers, notably the German Gottfried Leibniz, laughed at Newton and said he was mad. They said there can't be any such thing as mysterious forces pulling things down. Newton must, said Leibniz, believe in the occult.
0: Now, as Jana Wang points out in her doctoral thesis... The occult is exactly what Newton did believe in. Not the occult of 19th century seances and things that go bang in the night, but the 17th century occult, which simply means hidden or inexplicable forces. Newton, like Bacon before him and Hooke and many other 17th century English natural philosophers, were comfortable with the idea that there were mysterious unexplained forces at work in the universe. They could observe them and measure them even when they couldn't explain them. We might very well say, because Newton himself said it, they were very close to, quotes, "'natural magic.'"
1: Newton was a mathematical genius. He made the discoveries he did, however, because he inherited certain brilliant traditions in England, including a belief that there were mysterious forces at work in nature, hidden, inexplicable, perhaps magical forces, that worked at a distance with no obvious explanation. In 17th century terms, they were occult.
0: Historian Niccolò Giucardini adds that other 17th century English natural philosophers also widely believed that matter was suffused with a God-given spirit. We've already seen that Newton took this idea up too. He even wrote of the earth as, quotes, a great animal. Newton equally believed that some matter was sociable, his word, and other matter, unsociable, for reasons he couldn't explain and which he referred to as... Secret principles. He was, as we've seen, happy to discuss intelligent beings superior to us.
1: In all of this, Newton was rejecting much of Descartes' apparently modern view in the 17th century that matter was dead or inert. As Gicardini points out, plenty of thinkers in France and Germany therefore suspected that Newton fell into the tradition of natural magic. Well, if that's what they thought, Newton was apparently fine with that too. If it was good enough for the ancients, he believed. It was good enough for him.
0: So, does this make Newton the last of the magicians, rather than the first of the age of reason? The two young Leeds lecturers, Maguire and Rattancey, both of whom were later distinguished professors, ended their paper on Newton for the Royal Society by concluding, it's not really profitable to consider Newton either as the last of the magicians or as the first of the scientists. Well, although their paper is now over half a century old, you could say that they're right.
1: Scientist is certainly a narrowly defined modern idea. The word, in fact, was first invented by the Reverend Dr William Whewell, Master of Trinity, Newton's College in Cambridge, in fact. He came up with it in 1833 to describe the mathematician and astronomer Mary Somerville. Newton had not been a scientist. He called himself a natural philosopher, and much of what he believed would have no place in modern science. But nor was Newton a magician in any sense that we would nowadays use someone who believed in being able to control the world with his thoughts or with a spell.
0: But in his own time, however, there were certainly those who said that Newton believed in natural magic and dabbled in what they then called the occult. As we've seen, Newton did indeed believe in inexplicable forces at work within nature. In particular, gravity, Newton's greatest discovery, was to him an occult force because it was hidden. It could even be called magical in a very important sense, it still is, since nobody has yet explained it. But Newton was perfectly happy to accept mysteries he couldn't explain, because that was his inheritance from English natural philosophers following Bacon. And also because he believed that the ancients' prisca sapientia, their ancient wisdom, represented a much greater understanding of the world than people had achieved in his own time. And the ancients had conceived of the world inhabited by natural magic. Newton's extraordinary discoveries were, at one level, only possible because he was a genius who happened to live exactly at the crossover point between medieval magic and modern mathematical science. He belonged to both worlds.
1: OK, so we could stop here. What about the story of Newton and the apple? Ah, the apple. Well, that's important. It opens up the idea that Newton did in fact have his own explanation for gravity. And it wasn't in fact magic.
0: The story of the apple has raised almost as much speculation as the idea that Newton was a magician. In fact, way back in 1951, two historians, McKee and De Beer, wrote a paper for the Royal Society that traced the origin of the story of the apple to 1726, the year before Newton died. Apparently he'd told it over a cup of tea in his Kensington garden to William Stukeley, an antiquarian and a fellow fellow of the Royal Society. Newton pictures himself sitting in his mother's garden back in 1666 when Cambridge was full of plague and he'd gone home to self-isolate as a young man. He said he'd seen an apple fall from a tree and it had set his mind working about why it fell straight down as opposed to sideways or up. His train of thought had eventually arrived at the idea of
1: gravity. Well, it was a good tale, and much later it became famous. It may be true. Before he died, Newton told it to three other people. But Newton had never needed an apple to get him thinking about gravity. It was a common problem that exercised all the natural philosophers of his day. And the apple story may perhaps have a completely different significance. You see, apples appear in several of the Greek myths that Newton had studied. And the notion of being in a garden, observing the world, rather than being locked away in a study, thinking and speculating about it, was a reminder, perhaps a deliberate reminder, of Newton's Baconian approach to his work. Don't say how things ought to be, only say how things are. And if you can't explain why, then for the time being, let it be a mystery. An apple also appears, of course, in the Garden of Eden.
0: Now, Newton had been born on Christmas Day, the day, of course, on which Christians celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, and this was very significant to Newton. When he came up with a name that he could use as a pseudonym for his chemical work, he did what other chemists did. He took the Latin version of his name and made an anagram. Oh, he came up with 30, in fact. But the one he preferred to use was Jehovah Sanctus Unus, Jehovah the One
1: God. Now, Newton's religious beliefs would need another whole pile of paper napkins to explain. (laughs) But two things stand out. One is that Newton seems to have flirted with the idea that he was, in some sense, the prophet of his generation. The successor to Christ himself, sent to proclaim a new dispensation. Like Christ, he was the new man, or as St Paul has it in the New Testament, the new Adam. And that's why, it's been suggested, 60 years after sitting in his mother's garden, he first came up with this story about the apple. It had been a reference to the Garden of Eden. Well, perhaps.
0: But what we do know about Newton's religion is that it supplied him, at least, with a satisfying explanation for gravity. He believed, as he thought the ancient wise men had, that there was a great cosmic spirit, that was responsible for the way things, in a biblical phrase, lived, moved, and had their being. And for Newton, who was all his life something of a Puritan and an unconventional but believing Christian, that meant only one thing. He
1: shared his private thoughts with very few people. A contemporary called David Gregory was one of them. Gregory was among the rare mathematicians Newton admired. In fact, Newton had helped him become civilian professor of astronomy at Oxford. In December 1705, Gregory put down on paper some of the conversations he'd been having with Newton as they talked about a new edition of Newton's great work on light, Optics. They got to talking about Prisca Sapientia, the ancient wisdom Newton had spent so much of his life trying to decode.
0: What cause did the ancients assign to gravity? asked
1: Gregory. And Newton replied, They reckoned God the cause of it, nothing else.
0: And according to everything he wrote... That was good enough for him.
1: For more on this story and others at our History Café, go to historycafé.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have.
0: Or contact us on social media at History Cafe Pod.